Some days the spirit of joy and love is so great in the church, uh, I just feel like my sermon can't even mess it up. Now, I'm not saying Josh's sermon couldn't mess it up. That's different. No, that, I watched Josh last week online while we were gone, and uh, he took several cheap shots at me while I wasn't here. And this is why I've been asking the elders if I can have the authority to fire him. Um, not that I want to do it immediately, it's just I think I could help him perform better if he knew I had that authority. So y'all can put in a good word for me with the elders there. So good to be with you. Olivia, the only bad thing about today for me is that Olivia is home. She's uh, struggling with this sickness that, uh, I don't know, have any of you ever heard of morning sickness? That's what she has. <clears throat> Y'all got that fast. Wow. And thanks for, thanks for being excited. Jim Gaffigan, uh, comedian Jim Gaffigan, talks about when he, when he, uh, he, the way he says it is, I just became a father, and everybody just burst out in applause, and then he says, I just became a father for the fourth time, and it's silence. <laughs> he said, people stop congratulating you after the third child, they just treat you like you're Amish. <laughs> like, can you, build us, can you build us one of those wood fireplaces? That's what he says. It's hilarious. <clears throat> so uh, anyway, thank you for being excited for us. Please pray for us. Olivia's 39, and this is insulting, but turns out the term they use for it now is geriatric pregnancy. <laughs> At least that's a term that has been used. Um, uh, so uh, insulting as it is, it helps us realize that we need extra prayer this time around. And honestly, what happened was we were looking around at some of the babies that have been born here, and we started thinking, I think we can do better than that. Uh, <laughs> And uh, um, not that they aren't cute, but we just thought we could raise it a little bit. And so we just said, let's go for it one more time. And so uh, here we are. Um, we, we don't, what, did somebody say something there? Another girl. Yes, girls are the best. Yes. I always tell people, boys are great. They're just the second best gender. Um, we will have a gender reveal. Um, we're thinking about maybe in a few months blowing up the activity center. Um, and uh, letting, letting you find out what it is. So um, we'll let you know about that. So, anyway, thanks, thanks for your enthusiasm and thanks for your prayers. Um, let me open us in prayer right now. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the privilege of worship, of joyful worship. To be brought into your presence, gathered together, as the saints have throughout history, and now to sit with your word, with the picture of our Lord Jesus is such a gift. Speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just, uh, before we get going, remind you of some of the structural things, or give you kind of a structural update on where we are. This is hopefully helping you not just to hear and to 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 listen to sermons about the, about the Sermon on the Mount and the, the, the story of the Gospel of Matthew, but to actually read it for yourself. So, so we've just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and if you remember, there was a programmatic statement in chapter 4, verse 23, kind of through launching into this particular section of Matthew. And the, 
the statement kind of summarizes what Jesus did. He went teaching and proclaiming the gospel and healing everything. So then we get into examples. Matthew sets out examples of this kingdom ministry. In chapter 5 through 7, you get the Sermon on the Mount. You get Jesus' teaching with authority. It's the teaching of the kingdom. And then you get to chapter 8 to 9, and you get the healing of the kingdom illustrated for us. And you're going to have 10 miracles, most of them healings, that occur in Matthew chapter 8 to 9. So we've got this beautiful, wonderful teaching illustrated in 5 through 7. Now we get the power, the healing power of the kingdom coming in Matthew chapters 8 to 9. And that's what we dig into today. How many of you during this past year have heard these words? You have to quarantine. You have to quarantine for seven days, 10 days, 14 days. What if you heard the words, now you have to quarantine for the rest of your life? That was the sentence that was given to lepers in Jesus' day. At least assuming they could not find a healing for, for the disease. And when we talk about leprosy, just sidebar here, leprosy is not necessarily what we think of leprosy today. It stands for all kinds of skin diseases, but the translations a lot of times just use leprosy, and that's what we're going to go with today. Leprosy was a life sentence of isolation. It wasn't just that you were sick. It wasn't just that your skin was messed up, perhaps painful, perhaps, uh, you know, as at least modern-day leprosy, parts of the body will fall off because I'm sure Steve could tell us the, the processes that happen uh, biologically, but, but the, the skin dies and falls off. But, but whatever it was, more severe, less severe, uh, not only do you have the physical problem, but you had the social problem of being cut off from the people. And one of the reasons that we don't hear stories like this, as, as interesting as they actually are, one of the reasons we, we don't uh, tune into them like, like we would if we understood, is because we have missed, we, we've taken for granted values today that they didn't take for granted at the time of Jesus. Values like inclusion and equality and compassion and forgiveness, and acceptance, things like that, Jesus has stamped upon the earth with his presence and people following him throughout the years. So, that, so much so that people who don't really even practice it today, they know that it's good. But it wasn't always so. There was a time when people thought exclusion was really good. And they didn't see the need for this kind of radical compassion for everybody at all times. In fact, they thought, and people today still think sometimes that, no, it's a bad thing to show that kind of compassion. People deserve what they're getting. It's karma or whatever else, you know, however else we explain it. Jesus marked the world, though, with a different way of viewing people. And his people since then have seen it differently. But we don't understand that. So we don't understand what a huge deal it is for a leper to come to Jesus. We think, of course, yeah, that's sweet. That's what we value. We value that because Jesus changed the world. And, and now people think differently about things. So look at this passage here and try to grasp its radicality. When he came down from the mountain teaching 
the Sermon on the Mount, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. But just notice at the start, a leper came to him. That's not supposed to happen. You know that? Lepers aren't supposed to be coming. And this is in the Bible. <laughs> Lepers are supposed to shout, unclean. And they're supposed to wear their hair disheveled. And they're supposed to wear uh, raggedy clothes so everybody can recognize them and know, stay away from the lepers. And yet here's a leper who's coming. And somehow he's watched Jesus from a distance. He's heard about Jesus. And he knows, this guy is my only hope. And in a world marked by ritual impurity where all kinds of things could make you impure, touching a dead body, etc., eating the wrong food. There was very little, if anything, that was worse than leprosy. There was very little, if anything, that said stay away, more than leprosy said stay away. And yet here he is coming to Jesus, and he knows that Jesus just might be willing to do something that nobody else would do for him. If you're willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus does something. This is not insignificant that he does this. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Can you imagine how long it had been since this man had been touched? We're not told how many years he had been a leper. So we can't specify, was it five years, was it ten years, was it two years? But I can only imagine it had been a long time where now he's seeking the only help he can get, the last hope he has. I heard this, I haven't done my own research on this, but I heard this a long time ago, that, that uh, experts say a healthy human being needs to be touched in a meaningful way three times a day. We understand that with children. I mean, you may have heard the research that children actually die if they're not held. If they're not physically touched. Can you imagine living in a world with zero physical touch? And not just for any reason, because you were viewed as nasty and defiled and unclean. And the first thing Jesus does... Before he even says a word to this man, as he reaches out and he touches him. And I don't think it was just a kind of, <laughs> Jesus wasn't afraid like that. He reaches out and he touches this guy and he says to him the words that he was so desperately hoping to hear. I am willing <laughs> to be clean. Do you remember how I talked to you a few months ago about a guy who's written a book called Contagious Holiness? And the idea was that before Christ, before the dawning of the kingdom in Christ, people were thinking in terms of, and, and this is a legitimate expression of the, of the scriptures, that, that impurity is contagious. 
And if you get close to the impurity, if you touch the wrong thing, if you eat the wrong thing, if you associate with the wrong person, you become impure. You're then separated from God. You can't go to the temple. And you got to be very careful about that. Jesus comes and disregards all of that. And instead of impurity then being contagious, his holiness is contagious. And instead of him becoming impure and unclean, the impure and unclean become clean and pure. And the whole way of thinking is reversed. Entire narratives of life are turned on their head. The world is spinning a different direction. Because Jesus says, no, you're not unclean, I'm clean. And that's the definitive word in this setting. And now that defines Christian ministry from there on out. You understand that's what's happened throughout the years? Let me just explain it to you like this. Many people in the world of Christ back then, they would have jerked away from a leprous individual. And they would have thought that they were doing God's service. They would have thought it was their religious obligation. They would have thought it was the right and holy thing to do. And do you know that is one version of religion that goes around still today? And I I lived in that. And I thought I was being faithful to God that way. And it's not all, I can say it from a place of compassion because it's not all formed by ill intentions. I know I lived in it. I was trying to be faithful to God. But I thought there were certain things you didn't do. And that was the major way I could demonstrate my holiness. So one time in high school, a girl invited me, a pretty girl. She invited me to come to a dance or to to a party. And my immediate response was, is it a dance? Because I knew dancing was a no-no. She said, yes. I said, no. Just like that. And I thought I was being faithful. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to comment on on the goodness of dancing, okay? I do think there's a lot bad with the lascivious lewdness and and sexual type things uh, that go on. That's not my my purpose here. I'm just saying, uh, defining my religion in that way so that I immediately showed my, my condemnation by my rejection of this invitation, something was off with that. I played football, and um, I was known for, as a leader on the football team, people knew not to cuss around me. <laughs> and I, at, at, my, uh, at my senior, oh, senior talks or whatever, one of the football players got up and, and said that, and he meant it as a compliment to me, I think. But looking back on it, I think, ah, oh, man, how do I have that reputation? He said, he said sometimes somebody would be saying a, a bad word and in the huddle or something like that, and they'd see me coming, and be like, Oh, be quiet. That dude will kick your butt. <laughs> That's what he said. Now, is that the, is that the reputation? Is, is that who Jesus was with sinners? The scripture says this man and, and the people around him didn't understand it. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Not this dude kicks your butt, right? But see, I was the one 
doing the opposite. I was the one pushing away. I didn't have the reputation of receiving sinners and welcoming them. And, and, and Jesus, see, I, I had the philosophy of avoid the impurity. Stay away from the no-nos. But when Jesus comes, that thinking gets reversed. And we can no longer primarily define our holiness by who we eat with, where we'll go, who we won't touch, what we won't touch. Now holiness is defined by a radical transforming love. It says, I am not so worried about becoming impure as I am concerned about loving the sinner, loving the hurting. And I hope you understand this is a drastic change. This is a, a, a world renewal happening that has been handed down through the years, through people then, whether you look back in, in the ancient world, you know, you know where hospitals came from? It came from Christians following Jesus. That's how we have hospitals in the world today. Because Christians said, we're going to love and touch people and help and heal people that other people won't love and touch and help and heal. You look at people like Mother Teresa in more recent times who, who went to India and literally touched the lepers. And at least some, I won't say this characterizes all, but some of the Hindu people opposed her and tried to stop her because it didn't fit with what they believed about the gods and about karma and repayment. But you see, Jesus marked his people as those who will touch the untouchable. When Christ comes, the untouchables become touchable. Well, let me, let me move on. His leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, don't tell anybody about this. Jesus wasn't trying to become uh, well-known immediately and to have people come and mess up his mission by finding out about him. Uh, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. You see, this would have been acceptance back into the community for this guy, to go through the proper channels and be received once again, not as a leper, but as a whole person. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was restoring him to community. Next little story. We're looking at three miracle stories here of the ten that are in Matthew 8 to 9. This is the second one. And the second point we notice is that when Christ comes, the worthy become unworthy. When he, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now, a centurion, a Roman centurion, assuming it, that's who it is, a Roman centurion, uh, this would have been someone who was not... Uh, accepted among the Jewish people, somebody who may have been even very disliked at times as a Roman, an occupier, somebody who'd come into their land and taken over and represented the, the Roman powers. He would have also been a person who was uh, high up, high ranking, who'd spent his life in military service and was in charge of a lot of people. This was a guy who had it together. This was a guy that people feared. This was a guy who knew how to rub shoulders with people who were higher up. And he comes to Jesus appealing to him. Lord, my servant. Roman centurions weren't allowed to have family with them. And so very possibly this is the closest thing he has to family right now with him. And he says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Do you know that Jesus looks up when people are suffering terribly? It doesn't, that statement does not answer all the hard questions, I know. It does not answer why do some people suffer terribly. It does not explain 
why he doesn't come more quickly when we want him to sometimes. But I want you to know that the witness of Scripture is that Jesus looks up when people are suffering. And he sees that and he cares about it. He's suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The immediate graciousness and generosity of Christ is striking. And if you think about what could have been said in that moment, starting with, um, who are you? Or, okay, but give me the reasons why I should come. Or, fill out that form and I'll get back to you. Take a number, buddy. Just this immediate generosity. Somebody comes to him. We read the Gospels as if Jesus didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> He's waiting for somebody to come and ask him to do something. That's not the way it is. I'm sure Jesus' schedule was plenty busy. And yet somebody interrupts and says, I've got a servant who's suffering. And even though he's an outsider, Jesus says, oh, come. Let me go. I'll heal. But the centurion replied with this stunning statement, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. And here's the second lesson we learn here. When Jesus comes to town healing, the worthy become unworthy. The untouchables become touchable and the worthy become unworthy. That is to say they recognize their unworthiness. That's why we all stand on equal ground here today. Do you know that? Some of you are pretty well off. Some of you are dirt poor. Some of you come from a very good background. Some of you come from a background you don't want to talk about. But do you know that we stand on equal ground here today? Not because American society has said, well, we have a principle of equality that we're following. We stand on equal ground here because we all stand before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And his worthiness is beyond compare. And today, when I come to this table to receive the body and blood of the Lord, I come just as unworthy as anyone else here. And the highest class, the most famous, the most wealthy, the most important by social terms, comes just as unworthily into this assembly, to this table, and says, Lord, I don't have anything else but you. That's the basis for equality in the church today. We all stand unworthy before Jesus Christ. We're not worthy for Jesus to be in this house here. And yet he is. And he meets us here today. Only say the word. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, this man grasped something about Jesus that most people didn't grasp. He grasped the greatness, the power, the authority that Jesus had. 
I mean, imagine the power just to change things with the word and to make them so. I was thinking about this as just last night, my girls were, were trying to get me to come chase them in the yard with the game we play sometimes. And Avery decided to change the rules of that game for their advantage. And then she said, that such and such and such and such, the base is over here and you have to do this. And she said, and that's final. And then she went and announced to her sisters. And I listened and she said, I just told dad this and this and it's final. He can't change it. And I said, you can't just change it with a word. And as it was coming out of my mouth, I thought, that's what I'm preaching about tomorrow. <laughs> you can't just change things with a word in human society. You have to have authority. And somebody might have authority to change a game. Somebody might have authority to, to make a law. But who can speak to the unseen? Who can speak as the scripture says of God, and call things that are not as though they are. You know, maybe somebody think, well, if he comes, he can anoint with oil. And if he comes, he can lay his hands on. And there's a doctrine in scripture of laying on hands. It's important for us. But guess what? Jesus doesn't need it. And most people didn't get that. But this Gentile, this Roman centurion, he got it. And he said, if you just speak Things change. This is the power of the one in whom we believe. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Jesus didn't get amazed too much in his life. But he was amazed to find this Gentile believing like that. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And that would be very offensive to the Israelites. They were the people of God. But Jesus was looking for faith. Now let me just stop right here and ask you, what does it mean for you to believe in Jesus? This is one of the first times in this gospel we're seeing the importance of faith jumping out. Maybe the very first time, I'd have to check. And Jesus, Jesus mentions this faith being so important. It's what God is looking for. What does it mean for you to believe in Jesus? And sometimes people think things like, well, if I just believe certain things about him, then if I hold on to believing in his atonement, that he died for my sins. You know, we've talked about things like that here before. But that's not, that's not a full biblical faith. What is, what is a fullness of faith? What does that mean to you? This is what Jesus is looking for. It seems like what separates this man is that he recognizes that Jesus has a power. He knows it. He knows Jesus has a power and authority that nobody can compare to. And he's ready to act on that. He's ready to step out into that because of that power and authority. He's ready to let things be different than they are because of that. And I want to ask you to consider something. And please, please be honest with yourself here when I ask you this. What is it that you really believe? And I do not mean to say, what is it that you're supposed to say you believe when you come to church? But what is it that you really believe? We 
We can't help each other if we go on pretending to believe things that we don't really believe and putting social pressure on each other to believe things that we don't really believe. We have to deal with our beliefs as they actually are. And I want you to reflect on what you really believe because there's a, there's a combination of forces in our world that are designed to keep us believing that nothing is really happening in this world outside of what the natural sciences can explain. And this is a forceful pressure that's placed upon us, even if we're not conscious of it. It comes in all kinds of forms, academic, media, television, whatever. And we're, we're taught to believe that, yeah, nothing, nothing really happens that human beings can't get their minds around and explain. And if we could really get back to it, we could get to the, the root of things and and uh, if we don't have the explanation right now, we will have that ex- explanation soon. You don't need to resort to believing in spiritual fantasies for things. And even when we come to church, I'm afraid sometimes that is the deep-seated belief that we have. Now, they say, I'm not saying we don't believe that God is or that he's going to save us in the end, that he loves us in some way. But we believe in a distant God. And we believe that the smart people down here know how to do things without God. Is that what you believe? And see, I don't want to harass you to try to get you to act like you believe things in church that you don't really believe. I'd like to talk with you intelligently about faith as a kind of knowledge. And it's a kind of knowledge that believers have because we've received it through Christ and because we can, we can talk reasonably about reality. And we can know things that are real that you can't really know are real if you close your mind to those kind of things. And I'd like to say that these are the most reasonable, reasonable people on earth today, is people who actually believe in the spiritual realities. Now, I, I don't have time, and I'm not prepared to go into detail about this, but I'd love to talk to you privately if you want to talk about this, or sometime we may need to spend a whole sermon engaging these kind of ideas, because this kind of naturalism is deadly to Christian life and to real passionate Christian faith. Because what we end up doing is we try to act out things and live out things when we don't really believe the underlying things we need to believe to live that way. And we feel like we're alone in the world. We feel like God doesn't really do anything in the world. But we need to go to church still. And if we do, and we, we keep trying to believe things, and we'll get saved in the end. And I'm not saying you won't be. I think you will. But life will go so much differently if you come to actually believe in the real presence of God. And not just to believe it, but to know it. As a very reasonable person can know it. I'm afraid sometimes what we have is a, a situation where where people have stopped believing, and this is a little bit different, I'm transitioning here, people have stopped believing in the power of God. My granddad, who was a good and fine man, because of the system of faith he had received, when he was, when he was 84 years old, he got cancer, and he said, I can't remember if he told me this personally or if he told somebody who told me, but he said, don't pray for me to get better because that would be a miracle and I don't believe in miracles. And what I'm afraid has happened to some people is because we've said we don't believe in miracles, 
we've ended up believing God doesn't do anything. He's not a close God. He's not a present God. He's not available. His kingdom's not real in here with us. And that belief system has to change for us to live in the reality that Jesus brings. Please consider what you really believe. And let's talk to each other in the body of Christ about these things. Okay. Oh, I, I, I uh, didn't give you number three, although you can read it. Outsiders are becoming insiders when Christ comes to town. This guy's an outsider, but he becomes an insider because of the love of Christ. And then Jesus says, because of that, uh, verse 11, he, he, he sees this instantiated in this Gentile Roman centurion. And he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. And so the centurion said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. It's an idea of faith. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Last point here. When Jesus comes to town, the unnoticed become noticed. And this is when he, when he heals Peter's mother-in-law. He saw her lying sick with a fever. And it's interesting as far as the text goes, we don't have any request here. Peter doesn't say it. She doesn't say it. But he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word. There's that idea of with the word, by the way. The Gentile centurion told him, just speak the word. And here we have again, just a word. He can just speak it and it happens. And he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. The unnoticed become noticed with Jesus. We may think, well, it was hard to miss her in a small house in Capernaum. Well, yes, but why was Jesus in that house anyway? This was the king the Messiah. And here he was in a fisherman's house. And so the fisherman's relative receives the overflow of his goodness and his healing touch. And she's raised up immediately. And if you watch The Chosen, she asks Jesus if he likes goat cheese. <laughs> we like that part. Jesus notices the unnoticed, and so does the church. If you've felt like the unnoticed, if you've felt like the unclean, if you've felt like the outsider, I want you to know today that Jesus says, come. When we come to this table, Jesus says, come. I wouldn't have thought this up. I wouldn't have invented things this way, but I am a follower of the great Lord Jesus and he says to you today, come. I want to say one brief word before I sit down, and that is that um, Jesus still heals people today. Sometimes he does it very dramatically, and I could tell you a lot of stories about that. Sometimes he does it slowly. Sometimes it happens over time through various means. Sometimes it's emotional healing. 
deep emotional healing that people receive from Jesus. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's relational. But Jesus is still in the healing business, and to be his church, following him in this gospel that we're reading, we have to be a church of healing. And uh, that's one reason why we're going to come together and pray next week. Look, I can't explain why sometimes we see dramatic healings and sometimes we don't. Um, I don't have all the answers to that. I don't know why I haven't seen more than I have. And I'm not worrying myself with that. Because as a follower of Jesus, I know that the kingdom has come. It arrived with him, and it has been arriving since him. And when we gather together in Jesus' name, we're there as a kingdom community with kingdom dynamics that are real. And when we come together to pray and to seek him, we come together with people who know who Jesus is. And he can speak a word still today. He can speak a word to you here, right here, right now, right at this table that you may need desperately. And so as his people today, we say, come. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for being you. What would we do without you? Where would we be without you, Lord? Thank you for inviting us to receive your healing touch. Thank you for being among us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.